Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. The individualist's perspective, dominant in modern culture, is easy to fall into. Individual cognition is what we actually experience. We can monitor our urges and reasoning process, our attempts at composing meaningful sentences, the emotional contour that accompanies our interactions with other people, and certainly our craving and suffering. But we easily overlook that these experiences always, always occur against a sociocultural background. In the last weeks, we've looked at individual cognition and social cognition, and seeing that they are inextricably intertwined. Like air, we forget the sociocultural context is ever-present. We do not see that our individual cognitive experiences also tend to provide pieces or steps in larger social cognitive processes that we do not always apprehend. We also miss how In particular, a self is constructed socially through a process of self-presentation motivated by individual craving. Under the individualist perspective, self-help is about trying to help the individual self. In fact, it is self-help when we improve our skills in self-presentation, say by reading Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. Buddhism, as self-help, is generally understood as serving to mitigate stress, agitation, distractedness, anger, and so on, generally through mindfulness. Roughly, our cognitive processes or experience of life seem to be out of whack, and we want them to be otherwise. We generally do not venture to ask, if it is merely our individual cognition that is out of whack, or the sociocultural matrix as a whole. We've seen that either can be problematic. A great moral principle in our modern neoliberal culture is that we accept personal responsibility for what ails us. Therefore, self-help is necessary. It's the same with our bodies. If we get sick, it is our personal responsibility to see a doctor and to have already secured the means to pay the doctor. But what if 20% of the people in our village suffer from the same horrible cancer? Are we individually out of whack? Or is the society that put that petrochemical plant in our village out of whack? Our bodies are inextricably intertwined with the physical environment in which they are located. Although it makes sense to go to the doctor and seek help for oneself, the doctor can only deal with a symptom of a deeper social problem that goes unaddressed. We might think of Buddhist practice as highly individual, 
like the doctor's cancer treatment and therefore incapable of dealing with underlying social threats to our individual well-being. This is why it fits so neatly into the self-help paradigm. I want to argue that this viewpoint trivializes the role of Buddhism. Buddhism goes beyond the symptoms and addresses the deeper problems, even the social problems. This puts Buddhism as self-help into perspective. If Buddhist practice addresses the symptom, that is well and good, but Buddhism does far more. Buddhist practice was invariably placed by the Buddha into a social context, which needs to be appropriate if the practice is to succeed. This is expressed strikingly in a short conversation between the Buddha and Ananda. As he was seated to one side, Venerable Ananda said to the fortunate one, This is half of the holy life, Lord, having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. Don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the whole of the holy life. When a monk has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, he can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. In essence, the Buddha is saying that if you put yourself in the appropriate sociocultural context by surrounding yourself with the right kinds of people, your practice will unfold naturally within that context. The fifth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is right livelihood. Aside from family, it is primarily through choice of livelihood that we find our place in the sociocultural world. This factor is, for instance, a key determining factor in one's ethical choices, which is the topic of most of the other factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. Our ethical choices in all aspects of our life help define our position and relations within the sociocultural matrix. In particular, they tend to put us on the side of cooperative behavior rather than on the side of self-interest and cheating. In fact, complete realization of non-self and selflessness as our practice develops renders us virtually incapable of acting in many sociocultural roles or express the other way round, acting in many sociocultural roles makes it impossible to realize non-self through Buddhist practice. We might think of the hell realm, animal realm, human realm, and deity realm as symbols for different kinds of sociocultural circumstances into which we might be born, with corresponding opportunities for success in Buddhist practice. The unfortunate hell and animal realms are highly detrimental to practice because their denizens are overwhelmed with craving and suffering. The human realm is optimal because we are on the fence between living our lives cooperatively in the interests of others and living our lives with the self front and center.
but we're told that even the human realm itself can provide unfortunate and fortunate circumstances for rebirth. Parenthetically, I note that whether these realms exist ontologically or are simply cognitive constructs is not an important debate in terms of practice needs. We can take them either way. Recall that the socio-cultural world itself is fundamentally symbolic, and we make up what we want quite freely, as long as it's useful for us, including money, sports, and inalienable human rights. It is similarly pointless to argue whether a football game is nothing more than grown men throwing and kicking a ball around, or whether it is something hugely significant and substantial. You just get people mad at you, and I don't want to get sports fans mad at me. The critical importance of sociocultural context in Buddhist practice is most clearly represented in the constitution of the monastic Sangha, a finely regulated, socially constituted institution designed by the Buddha to provide the optimal context for Buddhist practice to succeed. The core function of the Sangha is non-participation in the most problematic aspects of normal, mundane life. As we might expect, self-serving social engagement will tend to be problematic and cooperative social engagement wholesome. Within the context of the Sangha, seeking personal advantage, self-enhancement, or self-gratification are not permitted by its moral code. There are no sexual relations, no economic activity, and a bare minimum of private property. Beautifying oneself and engaging in any normal livelihood or economic exchange are absent. Monastics are not even allowed purposely to present themselves to lay people with the aim of receiving better offerings of alms, food, and clothing. They do not self-represent except in a uniform way to protect the reputation of the Sangha. While non-participating in these many ways, their cooperative participation in society on behalf of others, is generally unrestricted. I choose the term non-participation to describe monastic renunciation deliberately to point to the parallel to the social or political engagement of the kind advocated by Gandhi and MLK. Monastic practice is often viewed in popular culture as an escape from human affairs, as not practicing in the real world. I think it's more accurate to say, on the contrary, that with regard to social cognition, it makes a radical political statement, just as our practice aims at non-participation in individual greed, hatred, and delusion. We do not participate in their manifestations in social cognition either, in particular social structures and activities based on greed, hatred, and delusion. Before the Buddha, there were wandering ascetics in India, each intent on his or her 
own spiritual development. The Buddha seems to have been the first to institutionalize a monastic community to elevate what before had been largely unorganized and undisciplined ascetics into a social movement. The Buddha's achievement is remarkable because the Sangha has proved itself to be perhaps the most enduring institution on the planet. Also remarkable is that the monastic Sangha was designed to function as a kind of universal counterculture standing against the mainstream currents found in whatever culture it's embedded and for what at the time of the Buddha was a very novel and contrasting set of values and social norms. The Sangha even resembles modern countercultures, distinguishing itself in coiffure and apparel, much like beatniks, hippies, punks, goths, bikers, and the rest. However, whereas these live at the margins of society, the Buddha managed to secure for the Sangha a place at the center of Buddhist culture, where it would exert strong influence on society at large. Imagine how society would have changed if beatniks had been endowed in the 1950s with the social respectability of the Sangha. Now, a lot of people do not like the idea of institutional Buddhism. They like to be spiritual but not religious in this regard. But this insists that a practice is a private affair, which tends to limit us to Buddhism as self-help. I think this attitude goes, in fact, back to the Protestant Reformation, which we discussed in weeks past and which had legitimate grievances against corruption in the huge institution of the Catholic Church, but which also seems to have given us the modern self and individualism as well. There is no doubt institutions tend to be fraught with problems trending toward corruption. Nonetheless, human society is always organized in terms of institutions of various types and sizes. There is no way around it. Even a cocktail party is a kind of low-level institution. Some institutions threaten Buddhist practice, and some are supportive. We think of most institutions as coercive and organized in terms of dominance or power hierarchies based in fear, employer-worker, higher-lower management, master-slave, which are natural breeding grounds for greed, hatred, and exploitation, often maintained violently, with the higher-ups getting more than their share of available assets. In fact, chimps seem to organize themselves in this way. However, in human hands, these structures of dominance depend critically also on evolved structures of cooperation, norms of etiquette or ethical behavior, and especially language based in a common ground maintained cooperatively. It is as if the ape in ourselves is reasserting himself within the rich world of the cooperative sociocultural matrix. 
However, the Sangha is neither hierarchical nor coercive. It belongs to what the sociologist Emile Durkheim calls a moral community. Another example of a moral community might be a bowling team in which, like the Three Musketeers, the members are all for one and one for all. They are equals in team spirit. Even while some might be more capable, enjoy more prestige, but not dominance, than others. The team makes decisions by consensus, enjoys a lot of camaraderie, puts the team over self, and even wears identical uniforms. It is called a moral community not because they behave ethically, but because internally they follow an explicit or implicit common code of right and wrong. They often observe group-identifying rituals, like special greetings. This might be speculative, but it seems that moral communities were the rule in our ancestral environment, that is, the environment natural selection adapted us to. Moral communities are not all goodness and light. They tend to be tribal and fight with one another. They can also be quite unethical. A bevy of Nazis can form a moral community. But then came agriculture, and with that a surplus of wealth, greed for personal enrichment, and the growth of larger-scale social structures. The ape in us, which was still there all along, reemerged on top of the adaptations and structures for cooperation that evolution had given us. Nonetheless, the advent of agriculture tended to blunt the tendency of cooperative communities toward tribalism, one bowling team in fierce competition against another. It brought with it the need for different tribes or ethnic groups to work together in larger enterprises, and this brought forth the axial religions, in which ethical principles extended beyond the tribe. Buddhism was part of the axial revolution, and the Sangha representative of its principles. The Sangha is therefore a moral community non-hierarchical, non-coercive, and non-tribal. It is also rooted in deeply ethical principles based in kindness and non-harming that extend without preference to humans, to all tribes, and into the animal kingdom. Monastics have no coercive power over the laity, only the power of their teaching, and none over each other except what is necessary to maintain the integrity of the community itself. The Sangha provides the context most conducive to upholding Buddhist principles, a life so barren of any opportunity for personal advantage that a self can hardly find root. Next week, I tend to talk about what it is like to participate or non-participate in a society as a non-self.